0: listening to Inside Out with... Turner. And Seth. And we got a couple things for you this episode. We have an interview with Neil Casale, uh, who is a uh, circles around the sun.
1: We held this interview for you all because we interviewed him a couple months ago. Now it's a couple months. But uh, we held this for you because we wanted those of you that are on your way to Lock-In to be able to tune in or those on the way
0: home from Lock-In to tune in. And also because there were about 1,500 Neil Casal interviews at the time, we... We interviewed him, so we figured why not let the dust settle a little and come come with ours, right? Right. And uh, a lot of those other interviews were on Osiris. Osiris. The Osiris Podcast Network, or Osiris Media, as it's known, OsirisPod.com. You want to sign up. We've got all kinds of stuff coming up, uh, things going on, many different podcasts, new podcasts. We've got some really exciting, even newer podcasts coming. Uh, also, um Under the Scales is doing another deep dive. I talked about, and I actually went back and re-listened to their previous two deep dives on lyrics. You fish fans, you need to be aware. We got two more coming this weekend, and they were sourced from the fans. Check Mm -hmm. that out. And also Beyond the Pond. Check out Beyond the Pond.
1: Yeah, and a big thanks to Pole Clark, don't wait till April and get screwed. Get po-laid. financial accounting,
0: management, business affairs. Big brains, big hearts, they care. And that's so important. Sports. Yes. Business. Definitely. You'd music be, business. You wouldn't believe the athletes they have at this point. But folks, before we get to Neil, um, our boy Joel Cummins wrote a, a book about Joel is in from Humphreys McGee. Yes. Okay. But uh, also Matt DeCorsi, who's with him, who we will t- who we talk about right away in the interview. Uh, it's the realest guide to a successful music career, and for any of you looking to get into the music world in any capacity, this is a very helpful thing. But I don't know why have us talk about. Let's. What do you think, Seth? Should well, we- I mean. Here's a problem, Rob. You got a rotary phone. I'm not sure if this thing's going to work, but let's give it a shot. Let's try that. Come on, dude. Be old school.
2: Joel Cummins, how are you? I'm doing great, Rob. How are you?
0: Great to have you on the show. Seth is here with me. Kind of here. I mean, I didn't read the
1: book because I never got a copy of it, which I thought was interesting that you sent a copy of the book to the music fan of the program and not the music industry, and this being a music industry book. Hello.
2: Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, there have uh, been some past experiences where we learned it was it was going to be better for Seth to be on the sidelines, so I think that... Uh, you know, kind of leading off with that was, was a really smart move on, on on my part.
0: Let's also add that I've made more of the mistakes. <laughs> I've made a lot more of the mistakes that this book right, can prevent right. people from that's, than Seth has as well.
2: <laughs> that's a great point. You know, I think Rob definitely does need the book more than you do, Seth. So okay, that's, well that uh, you
1: know, then I feel much better now. <laughs> well, I'm going to sit back on this one. I'll, I'll add some stuff here and there, but Rob Rob dove deep into the, your book, and uh, I know he enjoyed it and. Uh, so Rob, go ahead and take it from here.
0: Well, it's probably obvious to a lot of our listeners why you are very appropriate to write a book such as this as Humphreys McGee came up from, I mean, you misspelled your name on your first record and yet you still, you've overcome that <laughs> and many other things. And and you fought and you've worked hard and made it in the music business under your own terms. And that's an impressive thing. But I want to first talk about Matt DeCorsi, your, your co-author, because the Realist Guide portion of the title comes from him. Uh, he is, He's written two previous books, one of which was about a realist guide to a successful life or something, or successful happiness, or what was it called again? Right,
2: there's one called Balance Me, and, and he has another one called Million Dollar Bedroom. Matt is a uh, an incredibly successful entrepreneur and worked in the music business for a number of years, both uh, working for Roland and, uh, and Yamaha, um, and then started his own ticketing business uh, about 10 years ago and had an incredibly sex- successful uh ticketing business that uh that he started in Indianapolis and since then has a uh a podcast called The Startup Hustle and is doing a lot of really great stuff supporting small uh and upcoming businesses in Kansas City Missouri.
0: and, and he's a very prolific podcaster I may add and uh, sh- He's helping people with startups, and that's what you're doing with your music career. You're sort of a startup business, is, are you not?
2: It really is. It really is. Yeah, absolutely.
0: And I love that you you know you, you go into depth here and there. It's not really about uh, in depth. It's more about hitting a broad range of what someone really has to take into consideration because a lot of people look at a music career as fun and, oh boy, I'll just start doing it and it'll be great, but you really have to be calculated and you really have to be mindful and self-evaluating. And and uh, I think that you guys make that clear right at the beginning of the book, and I think that's a key part of it.
2: Yeah, well, it, it depends how seriously you want to be taking it. And if, if it is something where somebody reading this feels like they, they're they talented and they they uh, they want to pursue a career there are just lots of things to consider that I think we didn't consider necessarily in the beginning. And, um, you know, I've tried to help a number of people over the years kind of make, make some decisions as, as far as what steps they were going to take to try to become a successful touring band. So, um, yeah, I was really happy to contribute, uh, some ideas to that. And I think more importantly, all the conversations ended up sharing these different perspectives that all these other people had of how things happened to them or, you know, there, there's so many great different stories uh, in there, I think, about both success and failure and, and the reasons behind them. So uh, to me, I think that that was, you know, the the, the most fun and illuminating part, uh, getting that together.
0: Well, and the fun part of reading it is they're not just great stories and great interviews with these musicians, but they fit the flow of the book. For example, you talk to Taylor Hicks, and he laments about the way he left his first band, and then you talk about the next chapters about you know being alone, being a performing your own, or being with a band. You talk to Huey; he talks about the importance of his first demo, and then boom, we're into like the demo, creating your demo. You know, you talk to Susan, and she uh, she really talked about being self motivating. Tedeschi, and, yes, Susan Tedeschi. Um, and about her whole career, and how she was a self-starter, and how she made herself available to people, and surrounded herself with the right people, and then boom, you know, it's just, it's a really nicely flowing book. Uh,
2: Yeah, that, that part worked out uh, pretty well for us, and um, you know, it was interesting, as we kind of went through and talked about ideal people that we wanted to have conversations with, um, we had that idea from the beginning of, okay, let's try to put a conversation with this person after a chapter that was relevant to those topics. And like you said, kind of as a nice segue into whatever the next topic is. So, um, yeah, we, we, we had a good time putting that together and, you know, we had, we had a few people that, uh, that weren't interested in doing it or didn't get back to me, but I was really pleased with how much enthusiasm there was once I kind of connected with people about, you know, telling them what it was that I, that we were trying to do.
1: Yeah, I apologize. I mean, I, Calling you back that one time, um, I,
0: I, I didn't realize that that's what it was for, but uh, you had to scrap the the chapter on <laughs> stupid puns full <laughs> side puns. <laughs> I really like oh my God. the Victor Wooten interview. I mean this guy is just absolutely brilliant and the, and the way he compares uh, how children learn to speak with how the, what, how it can be backwards, how people learn music sometimes.: I was right, re- right. really moved by that.
2: Yeah, well, I think that puts it in some good context. You know, it shouldn't be this intimidating uh, other thing that you, you don't know how to do and you, you can't play your instrument until you know how to play it correctly. You know, you, music is about feelings and uh, being emotive, and uh, that, that stuff will typically connect with, with people more than just playing something with exact precision. That's one of the And things. that's important, too. That's important, too, but... You know, if you're playing with exact precision and without some sort of emotion behind it, the human connection can be lost.
1: And one of the things I notice with my son, who's six now, um, his his playing the cello, or even when he just picks up the guitar, it's not always about the notes that he's playing. It's about the intent that he has and finding his voice through it. and And often he's right. he's, he's making, you know, he's communicating in a way that is like, you know, obviously the notes are important. You can't you want to speak English correctly, you learn English, uh, but to be with music, to be able to really have that feel, I, I totally get what you guys are saying there.
2: Yep, yep. So yeah, Victor's uh Victor's perspective is amazing and he has a, a really fantastic book called The Music Lesson that I also highly recommend. Anybody who is interested in pursuing a career in music really need to read that. It's an incredible book.
0: But he does go on to point out that once you start getting into music, you need to you should learn music theory. That'll help you learn other people's writing and help you convey your writing to other people. You should learn multiple instruments. That makes you more valuable and it makes you uh, more informed uh, in your playing as well. And play, uh, one repeating theme of the book is get out there, meet people, talk to people, be open, be down to earth, listen. I mean, that's just, I mean, I'm sure that goes for a lot of things in life, but I think for some reason in music, sometimes particularly very talented people can forget that.
2: Well, some people forget that. And some people are just not inclined to being very social. And that's, that's, you know, there are a lot of people who are creating out there that are just naturally introverts and that's, that's okay too, you know? Um, But it's something that if you can be that way, or at least, Sometimes that way it can be really helpful to um, to, to just having relationships and, and having a network, and um, you know it's a lot easier to accomplish things when you get multiple people involved as well. I think that's that's the other big part of it is that um, you know along the way, if you can become friends with the talent buyers and the promoters, and um, you know really have personal relationships. With people, not just other musicians, but people working in the business, it's it's going to um, it, it's going to help you get to those places where you want to get. We're all human, and we all have to work and interact with people all day. So if you if you make that experience a more pleasant one, it's going to more than likely have a positive impact on on what you're trying to do.
0: And that's how Ivan Neville got into the the movie world, the soundtracks, you know, just meeting people, being friendly, being affable. And then they're like, Oh, by the way, we need a song for this or that. And right. Know, right. Off he goes. <laughs> Ivan, he also talked about sobriety a good bit. And and I, that has got to be a tricky thing in this world. I know when, when Greg Allman was sober, they just had to shut everything down backstage at, at almonds like they didn't even if you were a part of the opening band there are no drinks backstage you know what i mean but in most cases yeah. it's a mix it's there's some partying going on and then there's people who have a problem with it um i mean that has that has to be difficult and is that something you can catch early on and and nip it in the bud or is that just something you it's gonna it's uh you know something that comes with a comes with the territory
2: I, I think every situation is a different one, and so you know on a personal level, you kind of have to be an adult about it and realize if something is uh, if something is damaging to your career or um, you know what you're trying to achieve personally that that you've got to reexamine that. And you know some people are okay and can be sober and deal with other people around them doing whatever they're going to do. And for some people it's more challenging. So, um, you know, again, it just takes like that, that kind of personal assessment of, of, of what's going on and, and what you can handle. And, um, you know, I, I got to give major props to Ivan because that's a, it's a tough road to come back from. And, and he made that commitment to stay sober and has been absolutely, you know, crushing music and life, uh, since then.
0: There's so many, Different things I could ask you about, but could you explain? I I like the Michael Jordan rule. Who, by the way, since the football season is about to start, Michael only won six. Keep that in mind. I'll remind you that in in February. But can you explain the Michael Jordan? I, I really, I really like that.
2: And you're referencing him talking about he would try to figure out what the worst part of his game his game was, and then pick on that, and that's what he tried to improve on each time.
0: He's maybe the greatest basketball player ever. He's certainly one of the top five, and yet he was still constantly nitpicking himself and finding his weakness and trying to improve it.
2: Yeah, I I really like that about him. And another thing I learned about him was, you know, he talked about how every night, no matter what, if it was a regular season game, he wanted to uh, be his absolute best every single game. There was no taking a break or not hustling. And the the reason he said it is because, you know, there might be somebody here, and this is the only time they ever see me get to play basketball. And I want them to remember that, that I was the best player that they saw, no matter which game they went to.
0: Now you also get into songwriting a good bit. Um, you just got to get out there and do it. You never know when the inspiration is going to hit, you know? Um, I would the Arlo Guthrie quote, but it would anger Seth cause I've said it many times, but it's all about having your pole in the <laughs> water, you know, you're not going to catch any fish if your pole is not in the water.
2: <laughs> Very true. Very true. Yeah. So, and, you know, different people have different ways of working and, and getting things done. And I think that's, that's an important thing to consider too. You know, some people are, um, can write stuff when they're on the road and, and working. And some people are, are uh, more comfortable writing things when, when they're off the road. And, you know, you kind of just got to make those adjustments and try to try to set yourself up so that you, you have that time committed to do it.
0: Now, you talk one quick specific thing. You talk about digital versus analog when, you, when you're making your demo. And you talk about um, uh, digital has incredibly crisp high, yet the low end lacks warmth. Okay, so they will sometimes record the drum and bass to two-inch tape while also running a digital recording program to capture the results. The, the best of both worlds approach gives you the flexibility of editing editing with digital methods while benefiting from an analog warmth of two-inch tape. This is really done a lot?
2: Uh, yeah, it is. And um, you'll notice the, you know, a lot of the recordings that are the, the best-sounding stuff these days that are coming out, that's, that's something that's there. And so, a lot of studios still still use uh, two-inch tape, half-inch tape. A lot of uh, a lot of variations of that. And um, you know, just like I said, kind of take advantage of the uh, digital Pro Tools uh, flexibility with uh, being able to get some of the warmth that that is present from recording on tape.
0: And this is obvi- this is not limited to the jam band world. As a matter of fact, Chris Gelbuda is. Am I pronouncing that right? Yep, He is a songwriter in Nashville. Yeah, he's, he's amazing. Really cool dude. Oh, you know he, Chris?
1: Yeah, he's when I went out to, to Nashville. I stayed with him a couple months ago. He, he did the stuff with the uh, the Circles songs with Jerry Joseph. And a um, phenomenal songwriter. His
0: interview yeah. is fantastic. Um, he, he walks through his whole process and how he was malleable. He found his way. It basically embodied your book.
2: Yeah, <laughs> right. Exactly. He had to uh, try a few different things and, uh, and you know, now he's, he's somebody who's really respected and in national and in a lot of different circles, you know, and he's writing like country songs and, and top 40 pop things that are international in Germany and <laughs> yeah, exactly.
0: But he's self-aware. Exactly, he, so. He's self-effacing. Like he talks about meeting Gillian Welch and, uh, talking with her <laughs> and then she says, what kind of music do you make? And he's like, uh, yeah, whatever. no. Nah.
2: <laughs> right, right.
3: <laughs>
0: and then he says, yeah, "Yeah, I think it's realizing what radio is. Have an intention and just have fun with it. If it's not fun for you to listen to, it's not going to be fun for anybody else. If you hear it and you're not completely overwhelmed with joy and excitement, then nobody else is going to be. It's pretty simple. And that's key.
2: Yeah, so, I think you've got to be, you've got to be passionate about whatever it is that you're doing, you know, and, and you, you can't, half asset that's something that's easy for people to see through
0: folks this is an excellent book particularly if you're young but even if you're not i i learned a ton of stuff and i've been around the music i've been on the fringe of the music scene for a long time i definitely think you folks should pick up this book a realist guide to a successful music the realist guide to a successful music career do you think you'll ever release the full interviews i know these interviews are truncated would you ever on your website or something release full versions of it
2: uh, it's something we've talked about. We we're definitely going to put out some snippets of things. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, we just kind of hit the tip of the iceberg with this too. I think that's another important part of this is we really geared it toward somebody who's just getting started and has a lot of questions. There are a lot more kind of, you know, advanced things that I think once you get like three to five years in this stuff that we, we didn't really include in this. So, um, so I think that there's uh there's definitely a lot more um a lot more to be covered and you know this the, this hopefully will uh will help get some younger people headed in the right direction and just giving them some answers about where to start and how to how to split up your time and what to do with your time. I think that's the most challenging part.
1: Do you talk anything in the book about um how to find a manager, how oh, to yes. find a booking agent, all that?
2: Yes. That's yep. key. And, and that's I find that's pretty a much. Though. I feel like we we covered like almost every aspect of what you would need to get started. You know, that,
1: yeah, that's great because there's. I mean, we'll refer this book to a lot of musicians because often those up and comers are like, you know, how do I get on jam Cruise? It's like, well, <laughs> yeah. do you have an agent? Do you have a manager? You know, like, uh, right. So right. if you covered all that, that's that's great because there there isn't that many. What's uh, there's
0: not many books that cover that sort of stuff. So that's great. Were you ever tempted to go to big time management? Because you guys have stayed with your with your core guys, misspellings and all.
2: Yeah, well, you know, it, it, there there have been some a couple different things that have come up, but nothing really involves uh, changing horses, so to speak. Um, you know, there there have been a couple different uh, collaborations on things that, that came up as possibilities, but um, you know, in our specific case, it really made the most sense for us to have one or two people that were involved that were really passionate and that understood what we were doing because I'm afraid is kind of a weird band where, um, we don't follow a lot of the conventional rules. So, um, I think it could be really challenging for somebody who doesn't know us or know our music or know our fan base to, to get what's going on. And so, you know, Vince was with us from the beginning, and Kevin Browning uh, moved from front of house sound engineer for our live show to management in 2011 and really took over kind of the content world, social media, um, all sorts of advanced technology, things like that. So, um, you know, there was plenty of work for two people to be done. And it just made sense for somebody who understood, you know, for us to always have people that understood what our fans were into and what, you know, what they were looking for. So, you know, we've, we've worked hard to kind of foster a, a familial business environment, and part of that is, uh, you know, occasionally making adjustments, but really trying to uh, trying to, to, to keep everyone uh, involved and, and, you know, personally interested in what we're doing.
0: The last two things I love about the book, first of all, with regard to intention, and I, this quote has got to be a cousin. I feel like Miles Davis might have written this through your mind from the grave repetition, repetition signals intent. As a matter of fact, I was just listening to the Casey Jones bust out from RFK when the dead busted that out and it's this big moment coming out of space and it's this raucous Casey Jones and one of the choruses, we're, just plays the wrong thing, but then when it comes around again, he plays it again, makes it work. That's such an important thing. You're you're demonstrating, I, I meant to do that, man.
2: Yeah, right, right. Yeah, That's uh, a good one. If you make something that you perceive as mis- as a mistake. Do it again, and then it, it sounds intentional.
0: And also, the music you inform you with, you're, you inform yourself with. One of the things about Derek Trucks that I think makes him a great player beyond the technical aspects is that he's immersed himself in music from all around the world, including East Indian classical studies. If you only listen to one genre, you're not you don't have as much to draw from as a player. It's like if you only stay home, you don't have much to draw from as a person.
2: Yeah, absolutely true. It's about you know, experience and and constantly learning. I think that's that's another really important thing. You know, you, you need to always be a student of your instruments and and of music. And if if you go and do it with that attitude, there'll there'll be a a lot of things you can continue to learn over your career.
0: And you mentioned you're a Renaissance uh, vocal music fan. Are you? Is uh, that inform your playing?
2: I probably. I mean, you know, maybe not directly, but. Um, I think whatever you listen to, whatever you listen to, will kind of subconsciously make its way into uh, into whatever it is that you're trying to create. Where, but what, uh, yeah, I have no idea how that would manifest itself, but it probably does. Where
0: would we start if someone wanted to check out Renaissance vocal music? Where's a good starting point?
2: Ah, uh, well, you know, I really like uh, kind of one of the more popular guys from that era is Josquin des Prez. Um, so I would start with like his masters and uh, various acapella choral music. Um, and so you still that J O S Q U I N and then new word D E S new word P R E S. Sometimes you see it P R E Z, but yeah, Josquin de pray uh, recommend that a lot. I think that's a, that's a great starting point. Um, there are a lot of artists out there like voce uh, eight and Chanticleer um and even the King singers who were who are doing some really great a cappella arrangements of some of that music. So those are some artists I would suggest as far as uh, looking up who's covering it. But uh yeah, I'm a big fan of, you know, traveling a lot listening to vocal music or I listen to like, you know, the best of Edgar Meyer uh, or um, you know, Bill Bill Frizzell, uh Unspeakable or, you know, the the, the best of his folk music. I mean, I, I I try to listen to pretty chill music when I'm when I'm traveling.
0: I'll recommend Bill Frisell's Nashville record to anybody listening to the show. Oh
2: yeah, Nashville's a great one. Yeah, absolutely. All
0: right, two Humphrey's uh, nerd nerd ball questions, and then we'll throw to the interview.
2: Um, all right.
0: First of all, are you doing some new stuff on the Moog? I noticed last night coming out of uh, Cemetery Walk, you were doing some some cool things. What what are you discovering? New uh, nuances in your Moog?
2: Yeah, well, I mean, uh, the the Mogan and the Prophet, which are the two cents that I use live, those are such versatile instruments, and so I have a uh, kind of a a bunch of sounds logged as you know, maybe like my my hundred favorite things that I could use. Um, so I think you know, I'm I'm always trying to rotate between those, and then also trying to create new stuff on the fly. Um, but uh, but that's that's one thing that's pretty nice about. Some of the more open-ended, Umprey stuff is that uh, that you know I have a few minutes to work on an idea and develop it in the live setting and, and and try to do something new and interesting with it.
0: Well, it's great to have you on before Neil Casale, because I think he embodies a lot of what's taught in this book. He says himself in this interview, he doesn't consider himself a guitarist. Guitars. Uh, he doesn't, he's, he's not made his career in excellence. He's made his career, he's an affable guy. He's intelligent. He's a good listener. He's a, he seems like a good friend. He's very present. And uh, he has made a, he's made a career. He played with Ryan Adams, one of the great songwriters of our time. And he's played with all kinds of other musicians. So um, I really appreciate you coming on here. The Realist Guide to a Successful Music Career. Any last thoughts yeah. before I throw it in yeah. the interview?
2: Well, I do want to say that uh, I've definitely enjoyed what I've heard of uh, Circles, Circles Around the Sun, and uh, I'm, I'm a fan of what uh, what Neil and the band are doing. So hopefully one of these days we'll get to uh, share a stage together. That'd be a lot of fun. Um, but uh, yeah, The Realist Guide to Successful Music Career, you can get it at Amazon.com. You can get it uh, at the Umphrey's Merch Store online. Uh, www.umfreeze.com and you can get it at most of our live shows from the merch table
0: okay Joel thank you so much and Seth you want to throw to Neil
1: and now thank you Joel and now Neil Hussle
2: Rob Seth great to be back
0: at one of our homes away from home, Terminal West, the energy box, and we are backstage with Neil Casal, a veteran of so many great bands, Brotherhood, hardworking Americans. Um, I'm a fan of Ryan Adams, but the experts tell me the greatest incarnation of the Cardinals, and um, right now, circles... Around the sun. Yes, which by the way, is not from Golden Road to Unlimited Devotion, it is actually from stealing, right? Um... Well, that line was used, you
4: know, um, or that title has been in so many folk songs, you know. And what I had noticed is that it's a part of I Know You, Rider" as well. But the Grateful Mm. Dead... The verse they don't do. Exactly. So that was part of why I thought it was a cool... You know, a cool name they, for our band.
0: Because the music is kind of like the music of the Grateful Dead that they didn't do. Yeah, the, yes, exactly. yeah exactly. that, that,
4: that exactly. they didn't play. Yeah, it's like, yeah, it's a, you know, we're, we're the other, other ones.
0: You know? The other, other. <laughs> Although it puts me in the mind of stealing. Put your arms around me like a circle around the sun. You know I love you, darling, when my easy riding done. Yeah, but did right. you ever think of naming it Rings Around the Sun because of Golden Road in the, middle the Ocean? Um, I never thought
4: of naming it "Rings Around the Sun." Actually, the person who came up with "Circles Around the Sun" was Annabelle Garcia.
0: Oh, really? It
4: wasn't me. Yeah. Really? Um, yes, because at the Fairly Well shows where our music, you know, debuted, mm-hmm. uh, I had met her before, but we really became friends that day at, um, in Santa Clara. And we hung around the whole weekend and uh, she just had like lists of them. And then...
0: Wow, Jerry's daughter is an active mind. Uh, (laughs) Interesting. Yeah, imagine Uh, that. Surprising.
4: She's a great painter, great artist. Um, And yeah, uh, she came up with the... Well, it was on one of her... In one of her lists and then I zeroed in on it and then we talked about it and we're like, oh, this is really cool for so many reasons, you know?
0: So just to summarize because the story's been told many times, you get a call from Justin Koitzman who's the son of Bill Koitzman but more importantly a bit of a video and production wizard.
4: Yeah, for sure. And he was
0: putting together production for the Fairly Well reunion Yeah, and you were asked to perform music. How much direction were you given as to what the music should be?
4: Um, Not too much. He just said, um, you know, he wanted it to, you know, and I could, understand this right away it's like you know if you're at a dead show or particularly those two he just wanted music that felt familiar to fans you know if it was too far away from it Mm -hmm. it just would be a disconnect and it would sort of be like well why is this playing you know this doesn't have anything to do with why we're here you know so is that
1: one of the reasons why you chose to be instrumental
4: Um, yeah, for sure. Well, yeah, instrumental because the music was accompanying, um, it was being, like, played along with the visuals that were on the screens on the sides of the stage, you know? So there's really no need for words. Um, It was just before the band played and during the set breaks, um, you know, they would... Put up these visuals on the screens. Are archi-
0: you know? Were you guys there? Or? I was at no, Chicago. But I'd but. like to say they play them on the webcast. Which I'm the type of person. A lot of my friends are who, when the set breaks, we we will mute it and wait till the band comes out. Generally, but for this, we didn't. It kept us tuned in because a lot of these webcasts right. don't do anything. It's real boring, right? Real lazy about providing entertainment. So we don't. You know, we we've been trained to tune out. But no couch this, reports is what you're saying. This, yeah, couch reports are the best. <laughs> this could even rival that.
4: Well, like, on those screens was, like, archival dead footage and, yes. yeah. and you know, psychedelic imagery and all this stuff, so... Fresh was, animation. Yeah, mm-hmm. right. So there was... It, it didn't... It wouldn't make sense to have any words, you know. It just... Instrumental music was all that was needed, and it had to feel in it had to feel like the dead but not sound like it completely you know if it was just dead cover music i mean that would be the worst thing really yeah um and if it was just some completely different thing that wouldn't work either so yeah (laughs) so like you know justin called me because you can hear some of the influence of my guitar playing but i don't Copy it, you know. I can't copy it. I'm just not that person, and I'm not—I don't know—that skilled, and I've just. But you're one of the few that play the style. I think that's—that's that's the thing. It's—it's it's not that
1: you're, you're trying to be anything that you're not. You—you're one of the few people that play that particular style.
0: Well, also, he met Phil. Through the Ryan Adams thing, that's true. Yeah, I, I mean, a bunch. and then you even played with Weir a little,
4: a little bit with Weir, yeah. But I played a lot with Phil. I was playing a lot with him at that time. I'd met Justin at the Move Me Brightly taping, which was that um, wasn't it? Yeah, that was nice. So that's where we became friends. It's where I met Annabelle too. So, and then I did this. The, yeah, sorry, I did the score for the other one, the Bob Weir documentary that Justin worked on.
0: Fantastic documentary.
4: Yeah, we just become friends, and then he asked me to do the music for the Fairly Well thing. We did it in two days. We didn't overdub anything. We just made it up on the spot. We didn't
0: write anything. um, You did a Coltrane style. You took a theme, explored it, usually returned to it, not always.
4: Yeah, right, that's right. Um, Yeah, so that was it. And and the reason that the uh, pieces of music ended up being so long is because Justin said, oh, I would... It, it would be nice if uh, there was no repeated music for the five shows. And when oh. I when we did the math on that, I was like, "That's really that's like five hours. That's a really <laughs> long time. That's a lot of music that you're needing here." Um, so,
1: so talk to my accountant first. And then, yeah, <laughs> okay. it was a, so it,
4: it was really a challenge to do that, and actually, I mean, it was kind of impossible to do. Um, but that's why the music ended up. Uh, the individual pieces ended up being so long some of them would be over 20 minutes because mm-hmm. we had this mark to hit right. i mean you would never play uh music piece of music that long if you were otherwise you know you would just like you wouldn't What well, you say not really you're not not to the <laughs> not to the extent that we did you know right. i mean you would play for like 10 minutes or a 5 minute you know um, normally, when you 're asked to do things like that, you just wouldn 't think of doing this is going to be a twenty seven minute piece of music um, but we did it because it was such a like outrageous request you know but that 's actually what that 's what created the sound of the band and the music, and that 's what made it so cool right. because we weren 't just going for these like four minute normal length things, and it ended up being like having this like meditative lava lamp sort of quality. That's a great way to describe it. Lava lamp because that's exact. It morphs. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Actually, Joe Russo said, came up with the lava lamp thing. Um, It's the best analogy
0: I've heard yet. uh, Yeah. So that's really what happened. (laughs) Let me ask you this. You complete it. How far in advance are we from Fairly Well when you complete it? Do you remember? Um, Maybe like a, few weeks, you know. Did you get any feedback from anyone associated with the event in advance?
4: Yeah, yeah. No, Justin...
0: Before the, before the shows, I
4: mean. Yeah. Um, Justin was the person that we were, you know, answering to and working with. Um, and he heard it and uh, we gave it to him and he was like finishing his visuals with the music and he said, oh, I love this. You I, just know?
1: Need, I just need 20 more minutes, so can you take that song and just add 20 minutes hey, to it?
4: Yeah, right. So Justin said, oh, every once in a while, just maybe touch on a theme here and there so people will just recognize it. So that's what we so,
0: did, and yeah that would
1: explain that little bit of Shakedown here and there,
0: well, they don't you yeah, 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 that's right, but I mean, that's the okay. beauty of it you would once it starts to sound like the song, you would de- de- yeah, yeah.
4: exactly that's that 's what we did, yeah, we would just we would touch on this theme for a second and then get off of it, so. Um, you know it just ended up ended up being like this carrot for like what was that what wait you know there it was and now it's gone and we weren't deliberately trying to mess with people it was just more to try to connect with them
1: really. so so then here you go you you have this happen and, and you said the intention was not to be a band but no. then the feedback is so overwhelming that you're you decide to to go ahead and right but even this. before that the yeah.
0: distillation process of turning that 5 hours into the album first uh, was that more difficult than recording the stuff in the first place? Oh, yeah, it was yeah, we
4: we just turned everything in to Justin. We had no idea really what we had done. Um, there was no time. We didn't even mix it. We just gave everything that people like ripped off of YouTube or the streams and all that that was unmastered, unmixed music that was just um, rough mixes that we gave to Justin. And then uh, they just sounded okay, and that's what ended up being played, actually. Um, so it was very rough, uh, and we didn't even, I had no idea if people were gonna hear it, you know. I mean, I thought they'd get an idea of it, but no clue about um, the reaction that it would
0: get and at you- all. Then you make the album, as Seth says, you get all this demand to play live.
4: Yeah, well, it wasn't, well, right. So it wasn't a record. It was just five hours of these jams that we did. And, we, you know, we were, like, embarrassed about some of it. I wasn't, some of it's pretty, a little bit rough, you know, because of how quickly we did it. And we didn't fix anything, so. Uh, but then, yes, the shows happened, and it got all of this nice attention right away, And then I guess Rhino approached us about releasing it. And yeah, we worked that out. And then it became that, yeah, then the process of like cutting out all of this stuff and just keeping the best of it happened. But that wasn't that hard, actually.
0: And then you go in the live setting of these songs that were created totally improvisationally. Now, to what extent do you feel obligated to allude to them at all? I mean, are you just taking the same ethos and and taking them in a, new, in a completely new direction each time?
4: Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, uh, I didn't even really want to do it live for a long time. I mean, it took like a year before we did a gig. Um, I just, I was precious about it a little bit. I thought this was beautiful, just leave it alone, yeah. you know? And we were all in other bands, so I, I thought, well, maybe this wouldn't work live because there's no words and a lot of the, you know songs or whatever they are are just one chord they're not even they're not <laughs> songs in the way that you would normally construct them you know being a songwriter for a long time it's it's not what i was used to you know so i wasn't sure about playing it live but then we got asked to do lock in and uh, we did it and people seemed to like it and we did too really and we thought oh we can make something out of this you know um, just got to plug in the lava lamp and go. Yeah, and uh, I mean, the last thing that I would ever do normally is um, form an instrumental band. It has never been a dream of mine because I'm not that much of an instrumentalist. I mean, I play guitar okay, but I'm not One like One could say that guys. you are
1: instrumental in being an instrumentalist, like- <laughs> which is true, though. It's
4: true, Rob. All right. Um, but yeah, I, it's and it's just grown from where it started, you know? We came up with the name. We... Yeah, we picked the best of the first music, which wasn't that hard, at least for me. I kind of knew what the best was, and the stuff that was definitely B list. So it was easy to pick the best tunes. Uh, well, then and, flip
1: forward though, where yeah. you're you're now going ahead and to create a new album. How hard yeah. was that to go ahead and the second and say, record? Yeah, to be, you know, we did
4: this, and now we're going to go ahead and keep moving it forward.
0: Yeah, sort of taking the ethos in for the most part, but some overdubs, some structure. Adam wrote some things, right? That's right. Yeah, um,
4: yeah. I mean, it's it's not that far from the first stuff. We just took the dead melodies out, you know, uh, and then we just thought, oh well, we'll spend a little more time in the studio, not a ton of overdubs, and we're not going to spend you know months on it. But what studio? Uh, the same studio in Ventura, California, where we did the first music. It's called Castaway Seven. And it's our friend J.P. Hesser, who's a really great engineer, who also worked on a couple of CRB records. And it's where I live, near where I live. Um, and we just went back there and thought, let's just try to take this a little further without taking it too far away from where it started. You know, just a very natural mm-hmm. first step of progression.
0: Who produced or is it a self-produced? We just all did it. Just yeah. everyone collectively? Yeah. And so now, when you're on the road with the "Let It Wander" material, mm-hmm. which, by the way, the only time it sounds at all like the Dead is that when you turn on the envelope filter, which just yeah, of course, it, it, yeah, that's, that's what. In case anyone doesn't know, that yeah, that's that's the voice. Yeah, <laughs> um, Jerry Bear.
1: No, I just you just th- maybe think of Spike when you do that every time.
0: Jerry Bear should get a little piece of money every time when someone uses that thing. he made, yeah. it, he made it famous. Yeah, it's kind of true. But are you reinventing the songs every night, or do you find yourself? Building on the previous takes of them improvisationally. Uh, There's some things that we stick to.
4: There's certain uh, melodies that we stick to. Uh, But every night is always a little bit different. Always.
0: Does Chuck T live in Atlanta? Could he come out and sit in? I wish
4: he could. He probably would, actually. Well, let's call him up. Just kidding. <laughs> we do he know someone he, who knows him. He lives in, Well, he lives in Ventura, actually. Oh. So, yeah, that's how we got him on our record. He stopped by one night. He works at that studio a lot. And I've known for a few years that he goes by there all the time, but I had never met him. And while we were taking a break one night, um, you know, this black car pulls up and Chuck D gets out. Wow. Yeah, and he ended up hearing what we were doing. And he thought, I said oh, you guys are you guys are real musicians you know don't for-. <laughs> he said don't forget you know that, that can't be replaced and he was saying all these nice things to us uh, and then after he left I said man you, JP do you think he might come back and do a little toast on one of her tunes and uh he did it right away without hesitation.
0: And it's not just a great track, it's one for Chuck. I'm not a big video guy, but there is a really cool video for it out there. Yeah,
4: it's a cool video and he was just so gracious about us using his image and his voice. Like there were no you know, there were no hassles from him about well, you know, you're going to have to speak to all these people. He was just like go for it, you know. So That's nice. He's really lovely. Should we we,
1: we have to go <laughs> we don't get to that process. We have to go through such a huge process just to ask for music from like Oh, yeah, yeah from, <laughs>
4: right. I, that's I expected that with Chuck D, just because of who he is, you yeah. know. And well, you got to talk to my
1: agent, to right, to my it was, it was, I <laughs>
4: think maybe we just had a chat with his manager for a second. Maybe I don't even know if it went that far, but um, he was just yeah. so giving. It was amazing, really. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah.
0: Uh, before we get in the way back machine, let's <laughs> if we could talk about some of your other projects, like um, Brotherhood. <laughs> One thing Phil Lesh and Chris Robinson have in common is they don't, they're do not they not big on rehearsing, right? Did you ever rehearse with Phil Lesh and Friends? Oh, yeah. Oh, you did? Oh, yeah. For sure. Um, I'm glad to be corrected that way. Well, I don't know
4: if he does as much now, but um, in the early days of Terrapin, Crossroads, you know, um, when he would do those, you know, rambles and he would... I mean, he does, still does it to an extent, I guess, but he really plays with his family band for the most part now, right?
0: right? Inspired yeah. by Levon Helm. God bless you, Levon.
4: Yeah. Um, but like in, you know when I started with Phil, really in 2012, 13, those years, um, <clears throat> when he was forming those impromptu bands, there was a lot of rehearsal. Yeah. Um,
0: but what about Chris? Chris? Uh, like, for example, did Brotherhood... When you first started the band, Mm -hmm. did you guys just play as many gigs as you could, and make was that your basic rehearsals? Yeah,
4: we rehearsed when the CRB started in 2011. We rehearsed eight times and then went out and did our first show.
0: Um, But I love that. I love that to have the courage to do that. And you and I would think that that's part of the organic feel that that band had. Chris is
4: yeah, definitely. Chris is very courageous when it comes to um, like. Writing a song, you know, or having a song that he's working on and like pretty much finish it at a sound check and then just go out and play it that night, you know. He takes a lot of chances that way. I learned a lot from him and uh, like that, you know, because it's something I would never do. I'd kind of wait until it's more um, together. But the CRB, we developed all of our music in front of people. Mm -hmm. So actually, that's why. I think, um, you know, for our hardcore fans, the people who saw us a lot, I think that's one of the reasons they loved us. Because they got to see songs for the first time and then they would hear them develop over the months and years into wherever they became or what they became. Um, And they would hear them for months before we recorded them. So that was definitely...
1: Was there a lot of listening on the road? So like after you guys... A good or question. working on a tune you go back in and listen to it to see how you might want to alter it or yeah. what you want to have-
4: Yeah, we were always always tweaking, always talking about it, always thinking about it, always writing all the time. That And he the- was
0: mainly lyrics, but you were offering hooks and bridges and stuff like that? Yeah, that's
4: right. Yeah, Chris writes all the lyrics, that's really his department, and the genesis of the song um, you know, almost always came from him, but then I would yeah, I would take his like unfinished idea take it away, go work on melodies, bridges, choruses, any part of the song, and just, and then and I would hum melodies and make a little phone demo and send it back to him, and he'd go, oh, great, cool, and then we'd get together in a hotel room, you know, uh, bash it out, you know, and then bring it to the guys, and then bash it out some more, you know? What about Rosalie?
0: Did you have a big hand in that one?
4: Uh, I had a hand in arranging it. It was kind of Chris's tune. It's a great song. Yeah, that was like one of the early songs, you know? Uh, I helped with one little, like, turn in it. Uh, But yeah, all those... Yeah, I'm thinking back now how hard we worked on music all the time on stage because we were always on the road. So we were not a rehearsal band. We just... I mean, we would rehearse sometimes, but uh, yeah, we just like kind of took it out in front of people and fell down, and, and <laughs> you know, and then soared to yeah. great heights in sure. front of all of our all of our friends and, and fans. Is Who's that more
1: just, exhausting for you to do a tour like that? Oh, it's
0: all it's just so. But exhausting. come on, that, <laughs> before that, you would not experience anything like that. Like Blackfoot didn't operate that way. No, I'd
4: never. No, well, I'd never toured uh, as heavily as I have in the. <laughs> Yeah. In my 40s, I started touring the hardest that I ever had (laughs) in my life. I mean, the Cardinals, Ryan's band, you know, we toured quite a a bit, but. um,
1: That must have been really well rehearsed then, right? It must have been polar opposite versus what you were doing with the brother.
4: There were a lot of chances taken in that band, too. Oh, yeah. Really? Oh, yeah. That's great. Are you kidding? I mean. Ryan is one of the most improvisational, like, wing-it-off-the-cuff people I've ever met. I mean, he would, he'd make up songs on the spot, you know, on stage and stuff. Oh, um, sure.
0: But I think we're talking about the establishment material, of the songs. Like, improv- improvise, but then once you're in the song, you know exactly.
4: Yeah, we, I mean, we, we. yeah, it was a very tight band. But um, if I remember correctly, yeah, there was a lot of weird things that happened with that group, too yeah towards the end of it we certainly got it seemed to be a little more structured but no there was a lot of really unexpected things always happening in that band as well
0: do you remember the last show
4: uh it was in atlanta actually yeah it was at the fox theater right Mm -hmm. Um, what memories do you have of that uh it was in april of jeez it was 10 years ago um that's crazy maybe even more no, yeah, it was April of
0: 09, I'm sure of that. Where Colonel Bruce had his last show, where Prince had his last show. Oh, wow,
4: yeah. What do I remember about it? Um, I think it was a pretty good show. That's about all I remember. I knew it was over, so it was kind of sad.
0: Uh, you know? But before we leave Chris, because there's so much that I love about Chris Robinson. His voice seems to get better with age. I feel like he's the soul yeah. singer now that he thought he was in the 90s. He was more of a rock singer then. Yeah. I've even seen him play guitar really well, and uh-huh. I love that he doesn't rely on the Black Crows material. But... um mm-hmm. I sometimes get the sense he might be difficult to work with. Now, did Adam leave them rather suddenly? Uh, Well, Adam's not in the band anymore, but
4: um, I I don't know. You know, bands are hard things to... They're hard... It's a hard universe to navigate. We, you know... CRB's been a band for almost a decade, and Adam goes back further with Chris than I do, so... um, I don't know what else to say about it. But well, you're on a
1: couch, so just go ahead and sit back and relax. <laughs> and
4: uh, <laughs> I mean, Chris was never it, not difficult to work with. I mean, I always had we had an amazing songwriting partnership and great time, you know?
1: And he always, and apparently, Chris texts you before you get on stage every night to kick you in the ass.
4: No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> that would be good. No, but uh, I'd take that text I would take get that out there and me. play your balls off, kid. Yeah, Chris is cool, man. He's a. Um, I don't know. He's a true, he's a true warrior for what for for all this
0: for this yes. world
4: that we're in, you know.
0: And I love that he doesn't rely on the Black Crowes material. He waits till those projects and then does the material. That, that really impresses yeah, me. Yeah,
4: that was the big thing for the CRB, you know, um, that it wasn't going to be reliant on uh, any Black Crowes songs. So we made our own body of work
0: and you'd cover like Blue Cheer you did cool
4: covers we did very cool covers yes and he was always choosing cool covers and uh, yeah I mean I, that, the CRB was his uh, I mean that was the true step away from the Black Crows for yeah. him I mean I think he tried it to an extent with New Earth Mud I mean I never saw that band so I don't know but uh, the CRB was the, was the real was where it really worked
1: sounds you know? to me like he's a real solid
4: band leader no question about it. I mean, he's one of the most, yeah, like, reliable people. Uh, I mean, he shows up every day, man, and he's there before anyone else. You know, you would think, like, oh, is is he the stoner guy who's, you know, just stumbling around late and all that? It's not true. He's absolute when it comes to, well, his whole life, really, but... Um, he's sharp. He's very sharp, very intelligent guy, and when it comes to music and working...
0: He's always there, always. And and Deadhead's got mad at his sucking at the grateful dead teat remark on Howard Stern, but I kind of get what he's what he's talking about, you know. But we won't get into that. Hardworking Americans, I was even into more. I would travel to see them. Yeah. And Birmingham had that iron place or whatever. Oh, Iron City. Yeah. the fans you would draw there And the shows Two shows I saw there Yeah we had good shows
4: there For sure Sick Well you know why It's because they had laundry In the dresser. room <laughs> ah. <laughs>
1: These are the secrets of, These are the yeah. road yes. secrets You know yeah. like certain the, venues The band
4: can wash their clothes You know They're you're, you're gonna have a good gig
1: And then there's the other one Where you go I forget the venue theres I'm sure there's many But like you go in it's like The the old woman She does all the uh, She cooks for everyone And it's not your catering But that's the catering they have And it's like all, You know Just things like that On the road it That make a difference
4: Nice yeah but uh, hardworking Americans yeah Todd's not just a trip to be on the road with yeah he's a trip all the time (laughs) but I mean he's
1: we gotta get to Nashville and chat with him
0: I know we really want to talk to him
4: yeah Todd's incredible he's another I've been lucky you know to work with people like him you know Ryan Chris and Todd I mean Todd's his own thing entirely you know how the band hard he works on his writing is just. A, it's a and that's stamp. what yeah. I want to get to because at first the yeah,
0: sure. band was doing covers. Did you have to talk him into? Did you have to coerce him into bringing his material? Was he shy about bringing his songs to hard working initially?
4: All right. Uh, well, that was you know that was he and Dave's schools really like who had those discussions. Um, you know, we made that first record. They had. They had Dave and Todd had already planned having a band called the Hardworking Americans. They'd planned an album of cover tunes, you know, that Todd chose, really. I think Todd chose all of those songs. And I was the last one on board for that project. It was a project at first. Um, And then we made the first album, not knowing what it would be. And then really quickly we discovered, wow, we're a band, you know? Kind of like circles, you know? I didn't know Dave. I didn't know any... I didn't know any of them until I walked into the studio. Excuse me, into Bob Weir's studio. TRI? Yep, which is where we made that first album. Um, I hadn't met any one of them. No, that's not true. I had met Todd once um, at a CRB show, but only briefly. I I didn't know any of them until we started the first record, the day we started it. I never met Dwayne. uh, And yeah, we made that record, and it turned out, Great, and we were yes. all really inspired. And then we s- started doing shows. We just, and then I got, I got brought Jesse Acock into that band. And then him coming into it, that's what like fleshed just, it out. It's just what made everything work, you know, Jesse's spirit and his whole thing. Like everyone just fell in love with him in- instantly. And then it, then it felt like a band. And that first album came out, and we did those first shows, and we were just like. um we just felt on fire like immediately. And I can't remember exactly how it happened, but there was just this like really fast idea to get straight into the studio and start making another record. And I guess it was just natural that we were, we we would do our own songs, you know? Um, I don't think Todd had to be coerced, uh, And we went into a studio in the beginning of 14 now in Chicago. It was freezing, freezing, like below zero cold. And we just set up in the studio and just started conjuring music like out of nothing. There was no, it was like (laughs) circles in a way, but it was a different process. We had nothing prepared.
0: Todd, well, and that's not totally
4: true. Would Todd, he dose? Had
0: a, would Todd dose and just start spewing lyrics?
4: I don't know what he was doing, but he, he had stacks of poetry and lyrics, you know, just stacked high, and then we would conjure music and, like, conjure riffs and just, nice. like, will these arrangements out of nothing, and... I don't know. He would start mumbling over them and just <laughs> trying to fit words in and um there He's was a more, hardworking there, there was, American, literally. Yeah. There was a song Ascending into Madness that was like that I think that was his song. There was a couple that he are we, sort talking of, Joseph, are we talking about Jerry Joseph were we talking about. They're very that's
1: a very similar process with yeah, Jerry. Yeah,
4: right. Uh yeah, I know Jerry a little bit, but um yeah, and over the course of like a year we just sort of willed that Rest in Chaos record to life. And that's just, it's one of my favorite albums I've ever been involved with. i It didn't really get, you know.
1: What's the name of the album again?
4: Rest in Chaos.
0: Yeah, it's a great, great record. It's
4: really, yeah, it's like, I really love that record a lot because of how um, unified we were all were at
0: that time, you know. And, Todd and a, just blew me away. And know? as far as I can surmise, at the point you were in Brotherhood and, and Hardworking Americans, you were, kind of, you were kind of committed to Brotherhood. You were beholden to them. You were yeah. committed to them. Sure. And you don't really have control of their booking, so it became a, a chore to, to, to negotiate the two.
4: Yeah, yeah. That's what happened after a couple of years. Yeah. My
0: question is, now that you have a project where it's your project, uh-huh. if Hardworking Americans came to you and the opportunity was there, would you be able to negotiate your schedule in a way that you could re- rejoin them? And <laughs> well, I'm not putting... They're, they're, the guy who replaced you did a great job. It's just you're the original member. Yeah,
4: yeah. Uh, I mean, well, I would love to play with the hardworking Americans again, obviously, but you know, we couldn't get into the same like schedule hang-ups that happened... The first time, but... uh but we in got control the, we've of got the circles. contract right here. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm not totally in control of circles, you know? Like, we are, we're all a part of it, and everyone has lives and wives, and, you know, Dan has kids. I don't know. It's just, it's hard to... It's, yeah, it's very hard. We can to, always circle back to this one, Rob. It, it it's hard. It's hard to navigate at all. But I love the hardworking Americans. I miss the band. I miss those guys. I mean, we had so much fun. And we were always laughing, and I made lifelong friends out of you know Dave, Todd, Chad, and. um it would be
1: cool. Is you just take over a stage at Lockin. I mean, it's, you're going to say, like, oh, man, I need a break. But, you know, just take over a stage and just bring all your bands there that you played with. Well, that, that would be, I mean, that would be just stellar.
4: That's Full frontal casal. Well, that 2016 lock-in was a, probably the high point of my life. You know, it's like, wow, okay.
1: It was also the high point of you, if I remember.
4: Yeah, was, you were high. Yeah. Oh, it was nice. I was like, wow, I'm playing in three bands that, here at lock-in that I started. You know? Oh, yeah, yeah. And I played with Phil, too. So Yeah, cool. may, no, I, may I say that? All right, so it kind of did happen. Never mind.
0: <laughs> it, it, it did that year, yeah. Do you know how many times Mike Gordon, Dave Schools, and Phil Lesh performed on the same stage publicly? Yeah, probably never. Once? That, that and time. And you were
4: there. Yeah, that was. Tell cool. us about that. Oh, it was just cool
0: to see those guys going off. But you did you, did they just show up and we were like, "We'll go for it"? And then Mike was like, "Let's do." He's gone. Or I don't how much know. prep? Or did, how much was it just go? Not a lot. It was just a bunch of backstage.
4: You know, like you do this, you do that. All right, let's go. You know, Very I don't know. Maybe they talked about it more than I realized. I I, I actually don't I have no idea.
1: <laughs> you, you had but- to listen really deeply in the bottom there to really hear.
0: And you mentioned up. Bob Weir is one of my favorites. And oh, I really? No one. I didn't know that. Well, the first time I met Neil was actually at Birmingham backstage, and, and you were pretty animated talking about you know what a just chill, how he's his own man, and how he you yeah. know plays by his own rules. I mean, what what? How did you do? You remember first meeting him, and what what, what are your memories of him? Um, just that you know.
4: Uh, I guess the first time I met him, he came to a CRB show in um, Petaluma. Is that it? Yeah, he sat in with us there. He sat in with us another time at Wavy Gravy's birthday party. And uh, yeah, he's just like, he's just this cosmic cat, you know, who's on his own own trip, literally. So I don't know him well, but it's always nice to
0: be around him, you know? So you ready for the Wayback
1: Machine?
0: Born in New Jersey, but by the time you're 20, you're in Blackfoot. How does that happen, Neil? Talk
4: to me. (laughs) Actually, in the 70s, Blackfoot lived in northern New Jersey. They're a southern band, but Jacksonville, right? But few people know that they actually. Yeah, for years they lived um, very close to where I grew up, because at that time the uh, the club scene there was really uh, thriving. You know, cover bands, all kinds of bands. Like you know, uh, it's hard to imagine now, but I guess places were going. You know. Five nights a week, and you could really work. Um, like Maxwell's in Hoboken. Ah, uh, no, it was pre that. You know, I don't really know all the places they played, but for some reason, they ended up living there. So they were local legends. And um, when I started playing guitar, I knew about them because they had lived around there, and somehow I got into their records. And um, I learned a lot of my guitar playing, actually, from some of those albums. Um, The guitar player, this guy Charlie Hargret, he had this amazing, beautiful, like, blues feel. And I was really obsessed with that. And I learned some of that stuff. And then when I, I graduated high school, you know, in 1987, which is just a terrible time to be... Oh, you know, it was just a horrible time, really. Like, music industry wise. Yeah, kind of. I mean, yeah, yeah. Kinda, I mean least as far as I could see, you know, I was in New Jersey and I just graduated high school and I wasn't going to go to college and I had no, I don't know, I just had nowhere to go, really. And, and uh, a friend of mine, uh, my manager, who's here today, actually, um, who's that? This guy, Gary Waldman, who. Has worked with, you know, yeah. many, many people in our biz here yes. um, over the years. Yeah. And still does. Um, he knew Rick Medlock, actually, because Gary worked at a records a records shop. And I don't know, somehow he knew he knew those guys. And long story a little shorter, you know, Ricky didn't have a guitar player. And we Gary and I became friends over like Blackfoot Records and stuff. And I knew how to play the stuff. And Gary said to Rick, hey, you know, if you're looking for someone, there's this kid, you know, really, like, knows all your music. And uh, he said, well, I'll send him out here. So I went out and I, I got the gig, you know. But uh, at that time, uh, you know, Blackfoot was on the other end of their successful run and they were struggling, you know, and the original band was no longer. So I was like... a you know, a fill-in guy for a while, and I got to kind of study under Rick Medlock, which is pretty so, cool. Yeah. You know? So on that though, what are some of the
1: lessons you learned? What are some of the things you, your takeaways from that? That
4: <laughs> I don't know. It was pretty wild, you know. Um, I just I yeah, Rick was a great mentor to me, and we wrote songs together and played guitar, and I, I loved it. Well, but do you think you know?
1: maybe there's something there that that's why you uh, on the, with uh, Chris Robinson and stuff like
0: that that, that maybe that you get along so well in that? Because you, I would think that they would be looking for more exacting playing in the parts. Like, their fan base would be looking for a certain guitar sound at a certain point, whereas with all your, all your other projects, it's more about being in the moment.
4: Well, you know, look, in 1988 or 89, uh, you know, it was a much different world. I don't know who was looking for what out of Blackfoot or me or anything. I was looking for... I was, try, I was more exacting about the parts than Rick was, you know? I mean, a lot of times the people who invent stuff, they want to break away from it, or they don't remember. I noticed that with Phil so many times. I'd be referencing some show or an era, you know, well, it sounded like this at this time, and he didn't even remember at all. Well, even Weir talks about
0: having to teach Dylan his own songs before the 87 tour together.
4: Right, And but if you talk to, I heard Weir say once that like 89 was his favorite, you know, Grateful Dead year. Great which, harmonies. Huge backlog. Okay, or is that they took a break? (laughs) But like uh, a lot of times, the originators they don't—they're not as hung up on the details as the fans are. Not nearly. Actually, they're looking to go beyond. Get away from it. Chris the same way. Um, That's interesting. I I don't
1: think I don't think that perspective is talked about much though. Well, it should be.
4: It's very important because it's hard. That's something I've noticed with. a lot of these people, man, they and it's true of me. Like I, I don't know who wants to recreate exactly what they did. They're the ones doing it, mm-hmm. you know. Um,
1: well, that must make that's why it must have been fun with the Brotherhood because you're constantly the songs are constantly evolving. Whereas when you go and you place a tune that people all want to hear that tune, that's the one they know. You're like over
4: it, you know. You, oh yeah, you've, you've completely. Grown past it. Yeah, and the people, the fans, they're exactly. the ones who are hung up on it. I'm that way with the Rolling Stones. They're my favorite band, and I'm always like. You know, why are they doing this now? Or what? Why isn't it like it used to be? It's
0: go stand
4: in their shoes. Or why are always the
0: last seven songs the same seven songs? (laughs) Yeah,
4: or like, well, (laughs) you know, I'm just saying, like, there's as far as how something felt or, you know, what impacted the fans, they were doing it and moving through it. And we're the ones who get it. And we, it sticks with us. And we want it to always be like that. But it can't be. So, you know, I mean, Really, that's what the CRB was all about, actually. And now there's people who want it to be
0: like it was, you know? It's happened now. Even Brotherhood (laughs) fan base was like that? Uh Uh-huh. Well, yeah, I mean... That's interesting, because I would think that... Because an artist can train their fan base, and I would think by the way the songs came together, and by there was this kind of... Always the songs are like vital living things. You would think the fan base would, would be tuned to yeah, that don't and want
4: that. Well, I mean, but once you have enough history though, in the first few years, you're only there's not enough behind you yet to really get hung up on, you know. Um, and then once it becomes historical, then it changes. So uh, that's so now there are people who are I hear this like, well, we preferred. You know, the first version of the band with Muddy uh, and George. And there are people who came on in 2015 who liked that year. They liked uh-huh. when it was Tony Leone and uh, and Muddy. And then, you know, and then there's people, oh, the current lineup with Jeff, you know. So that's the thing. So now there's people who are nostalgic for 2012, you know, and so, they wish it was that way. And uh, there's no possible way... Yeah. That we could can go backwards, we can't. You know, I I know there are fans maybe of mine or Chris's or whoever. Why can't it be like it was five years ago? I, I in some ways I wish it could be, but now I'm in that position. I'm not the Rolling Stones oh, or the I, Grateful Dead, but you are to some own, people. <laughs> but I, well, but on our own tiny version of it, mm-hmm. now I understand. Um, particularly now that things are changing with the CRV, I'm having to answer. You know to like people and talk to fans of ours and friends, you know? And it's like, oh, you know, why is this happening? And there's nothing I can do about it, you know? I wish if I could make it 2014 again, I, I maybe I would, you know? But I, I can't. I can't play like I did then. I can't feel like I did then. We can't get back what we had then. So that,
1: playing with all these different bands and projects and whatnot, that... You, your, your sound develops, and it's so it's really difficult to actually go back in and recreate
4: where
0: your headspace was you there can't at certain do songs. That.
4: It's just, just impossible, you know. So let's get
0: back to where we were. When you look back in your life, the time between Blackfoot and Ryan Adams, what musically stands out most to you in that period of time?
4: Oh. Well, that's when I was doing my
0: singer songwriter bit. You know? you're, you're Grant Parsons. You listen to Grant Parsons. Yeah, I hear yeah. him in your music.
4: Yeah, it was all about Grant Parsons and Neil Young and Jackson Browns, early records and country rock. You know, folk music, like psych country. Um, all of the. F- things that um, you know, yeah, it was like the no depression scene, the yes. alternative you know, I loved Uncle Tupelo and Joe Henry oh, yeah. and I was obsessed with Jayhawk's Hollywood Town Hall and Blue Earth and those records um, you know, there were I don't know uh, Victoria Williams and
0: Whiskey Town? Uh, yeah, well, they came
4: time. later really for me um, but um, and at that time in the early mid-90s, um I was working with a guy named Jim Scott, an engineer producer who worked on Tom Petty's Wildflowers, and he produced the Whiskey Town Stranger's Almanac after my first record. Um, I'll say that. (laughs) Um, (laughs) No, but I mean, I got to know Ryan then, you know, that was like an amazing time period, really. The 90s were incredible, uh, looking back on it. Uh, So that was my world. I wasn't I'd I'd seen Grateful Dead shows, and I'd seen Jerry Band, and I had played the Wetlands and been around that Mm -hmm. scene, but I was not a total jam band kid at all. Um, I was into what we were just talking about. Right. I was into songwriting, not that there's no songwriting in the jam scene, but it's no, a different we're with you. trip. We, we, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I was into the Birds and the Brito Brothers and and uh, you know, Gene Clark and all of the Steve Young and all of the really I was looking for all of the obscurities that I could find. Um you know, I loved Towns Van Zandt, I went to see him play, and I loved Bert Yanch and John Remborn and the UK folk people and I saw Burt and John play and I would go to LA and record with Jim Scott and, you know, if you look up all the people he's wor- worked with, it's just, it's astounding. I mean, he produces like Tadeshi Trucks now and um, so Jim was like a big part of my world and Gary was there with me and... John Ginty was my keyboard player. He oh. now plays, you know, with Almond Betts. And yeah. Yeah, yeah. He, he, you know, if you talk to him, he, John and I started out together. We He's were played like, a ton of groups. Yeah, he and I were like, we, he, we were our band, we were the band, you know. Oh. Um, and we would go into LA and like record with, older people who, you know, were really just in their mid forties then. And we thought, hey. <laughs> yeah, what? Hey, listen, uh, I'm beyond so. that now, man. Uh, yeah. Uh, but you know, like we were seeking out people like Greg lease and Don Heffington and Bob Glaub and, um, Hutch Hutchinson and, you know, all of, like kind of st- studio people who played with all these great bands and on all these records. Cause we were, uh, trying to learn to play in a certain way. Um, we weren't. I wasn't anyway. John was more of a jam guy, very much more, because he was into the Allman Brothers, and he was a part of this world uh, more than me. Um, but uh, yeah, that's where we were at. That's where I my head was at. I wasn't. Yeah, I wasn't like touring all the time. I was recording a lot and writing.
0: So, where do you when you first meet Ryan? And to what extent was he familiar with with your work?
4: Yeah, I met Ryan in nineties or six no 97 at uh, south by southwest he already knew me because jim scott had made my first record huh. uh, but, and yeah and then he so
0: that's how he that was the initial he, yeah i met him there
4: and he said oh you're that guy you worked with jim and strangers on Al- almanac was like just coming out and you know whiskey town had a huge buzz so great band yeah they were great um and that was that whole Raleigh scene too. You know, at that time was just insane. There were so many good bands. Two I mean, Dollar like, Pistols. Yeah, and like you know, uh, Six String Drag, Kenny Roby, all these really amazing people who all like had their own style and identity. You know, there was no, there was really no copycatting then. You know, um, all of this like forensically studied music. Now, I mean, a lot of the alt stuff the outlaws things and Americana, like it's all really good, but it's all been studied. I notice a lot of it. it, It's been studied to the point where it's just like been perfected. And uh, songwriting by numbers at its worst In a way, you know, um, but it it, it wasn't like that then in whiskey town was not like, it was all hybrid. There were punk influences (laughs) It was country. It was like a mix of all this
0: weird stuff. But 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 you didn't work with Ryan until later. I mean, did he invite you into the studio? Kind of. Was there a crisis or something? You first worked in the studio, right? Yes, there was a crisis. (laughs) What happened?
4: Um, Well, uh, yeah, I would just run into him over the years. Like, um, yeah, I met him at right. I met him at uh, South by in in ninety seven, and then I would run into him. I jammed actually someone's our friend's house was me and john ginty and ryan like recording somewhere in like 99 and then i hung out with him in new york in 99 and then he loved the beach with sparks and i was playing with them and we'd talk about that and then we were at south by again in 2001 when i was playing with lucinda for a minute oh, and i yeah, remember I sitting them, at a white stripe show with ryan you know and there was a couple of really crazy nights then <laughs> that we had and then I didn't see it him feels much like yesterday, this crazy. <clears throat> yeah I didn't see him much uh, for a bit because he got really big you know and then I ran into him on in the street in 2005 outside of Brownies um, in New York which is something else now and um, I hear Neil you know from down the street and I turn around and it's him he comes up and says man I've been looking for you <laughs> my guitar player's gone man, will you come and play with me? And I said, all right, you know, so I went to his house and John Graboff showed up and maybe Brad was there, I don't know. We but he just, was in the
0: middle of the record, right?
4: No. It was, uh, oh, okay. No, no, no. It was, it was at the end, it was like, I don't know, he just, just, destructed his band, something crazy. I don't remember whatever happened. You know, I wasn't there, but, you know, they were on tour and then they weren't. And they were back in New York and everyone was freaking out or something, you know. (laughs) And they said, well, will you come and play? So I went and rehearsed and, and, you know, it was immediately like, yeah, this is great. Because Ryan and I always knew, right from the time we, we jammed with Ginty that one time in 99, there was some, like we had guitars on, you know and he played something and i answered it and we both looked at each other like huh that was cool all right well now's not the time but <laughs> and then once we got back to it you know it was great he and i were really uh that was a gr- we were a great guitar team great singing team too um so i helped i guess you know bring that band back to life a little bit or just help put it back together um and then we had a few uh, great years, you know?
0: Was he as spontaneous in the studio as he can be on oh stage? Oh, God, yeah. Is this going to be a
3: problem? Don't worry about it. No, okay. no, no we can. Um,
4: he is, is spontaneous everywhere, you know? In the studio, completely spontaneous. I mean... Uh, At a restaurant, you know? <laughs> I watched him write great songs right in front of me, you know? Well, for instance, like, I was just plucking around on a banjo one day in the studio, playing nothing, just mindlessly, you know, just kind of noodling... And he said, "What is that?" I don't know. I'm just playing one chord. He says, "Just keep playing it. Just don't stop." And he went over to his typewriter, and like 15 minutes later, typewriter, yeah, went to a typewriter. He would always like <laughs> write his songs on a lyric on a typewriter. Know. Um, you know, he was furiously typing for about 10 minutes, and then came back and grabbed a guitar. And that there's a song called "Pearls on a uh, Pearls on a String" that's on Easy Tiger, and we cut it right there. So wow. within I would say within an hour and a half the whole thing was done.
1: That's got to feel really good to like to do something like that and walk away and be like,
4: damn. Yeah, no, he would do that all the time. He's the most, you know, I know he's in hot water right now and all that, but um as far as, you know, artistically and creatively, I I've, I've never really seen anything like him,
0: you know. Well, since you mentioned, did you think he's being treated fairly? Oh, I
4: don't want to get into all that, um, but I'll only I'll, I'll talk about the music that we made and how much, you know, of a great time we had and how great that band was and those records and just getting to be around him working was just it's really incredible. Like the amount of songs that he would write, the it's just insane what like pours yeah. through him and you, I could always tell it's sort of like. It's like torturous, you know what I mean? It, like he couldn't stop it. So, uh,
0: head full of ideas driving him insane.
4: I think so. I mean, yeah, he's his creative output, and there is a manic quality about it. But uh, such intelligence but that, there is, isn't
1: that normal though for for the you know Einsteins of everything.
4: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess you know I don't. I'm I'm not smart enough to comment on that but i just watched him you know what i mean i just was around it and and when it was at its best man it was just incredible and the guy could play amazing guitar too when he felt like it and really you know when it hit him uh it's immensely talented and could play drums and you know i also would watch him conceive a song in his head and go out and play the drums you know, record drums to nothing, and then like build on it, and just within a half hour, mm-hmm. there would be a whole song there. You know, so, so any
1: desire to uh, get back in, in with
4: him in the future in your life? Oh, I don't know. I mean, I'm just, I'm just moving on to whatever else now. Mm-hmm. You know, but I love him. You as would well. play with him
0: again I'd, if it was, if the timing was right.
4: I'd play music with him. Yeah, I mean, we always played really well together. So,
0: what about Magnolia Mountain? Was that was the ethos of that intended? That it's, it seems very Grateful Dead related. Yeah, yeah,
4: yeah, yeah. From the start, or did I it think evolve so. that way? No, I think that was his like. Yeah, he was playing with Phil a bit then, and he was really like that was his Dead obsessed period. You know, so he did go for that stuff, and that's him. He could he could write in in like an idiom, and, and and you know he wrote a classic. You know.
0: Really? He she sang Warfrap beautifully. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he just sort of like decided,
4: "I'm going to write a, uh, I'm going to write that style of song, and it's going to be good." And he did, and he
0: was know? able to pull it off without being sounding derivative. It's, it's amazing. It's not.
4: I know. I know. It's it's a, well. It's just a truly great song. You
0: know, yeah. there's a number of them from that time period. Really. Well, what about as tempting? As much as this is an instrumental band, your current band.
1: So we're circling back to yeah, circling okay. back to circles. I, yeah.
0: Are you tempted to? <laughs> Take some of your at some point if it keeps going. Are you no. tempted to touch on your song? I mean, those song, you have great songs and they're just sitting there. <coughs>
4: Thanks, not with this band though. You know, I mean, we uh, it's very specific. What just an encore?
3: <laughs> a no, one. for
4: I mean, tonight, just, just tonight, one, just one night show. only, just one no, night only. I don't think so. Gary? Come in here. <laughs> uh, no, I mean, uh, no, it's. Um, I don't want to bring my past into this present, you know, uh, where it's we a totally have... It's totally different energy. We just... It is different energy. It's a much different sound, too. And actually, I don't know, Circles is becoming... There is, you know, we've sort of talked like, well, you know, should we sing or should we do something, you know, or like mumble something or <laughs> chant something, maybe, you know. The chanting, um, I can see that.
3: But Whoa. I think we have
4: a ways to go yet before we just... Like, go there. I think there's more to explore with this. I'm really enjoying it, actually. I've never been in a band that was um, like its sole purpose well, not its sole purpose, but one of its main purposes is to make people dance, you know? And that's what I'm really into with this group. I learned to hold a room as a solo acoustic guy, you know, a long time ago. Which for, is a skill. It is, yeah. I mean, I would just like, you know, traips around Europe, like, Teaching myself how to do that. Um, Just
1: like your buddy John Shane, huh?
4: Yes. And like the Cardinals, you know, that wasn't really a dancey band. And the CRB was, out of all the bands I've ever been in, that one the most. Hardworking Americans is a rock band. So, circles, it's like we try to really get this. People to just get this sway going, and i really—it does, though. It does. Yeah, it does when it's when it's really working, and I'm not finished. exploring and it's also, that you know,
1: it's really good work music. I find for myself when I'm like in a project and I just need something, it just it fills the room in this way, yeah, and it, nice. and it, and, it, and it and it it spawns or spur. What's the word? It spawns creativity with the listener.
4: Yeah, I I, I like that, and. I don't know. This band is also becoming a little bit of a platform for Adam's writing, which I I don't know. I'm interested in like facilitating that um, because he's has a lot to say, and we're partners, you know. So I'm just kind of there for for this thing in a way right now that um, where I'm not going for the um, you know the easy thing of like oh let's sing or let's bring my old songs into it i don't want to bring my old songs into this i really don't because i have a lot of baggage with that material you know no that's another
0: thing you don't think about as, a, as a it's just everything
4: sometimes. that i went through right. to write them and to record them and right. all the years that whatever you know like i just i don't um they don't people don't need that
1: you, <laughs> you know? you've worked through it and you don't need to you've already worked through it you don't need to process all that anymore.
4: Not really. I mean, you know, there are some very good songs, definitely. Absolutely. And yes, I do have, you know, sometimes I think, oh, they're just sitting there or people say like, why don't you do this? But um, this band, you know, Circle Cats, um, <laughs> we started... Go ahead, Seth. <laughs> <laughs> we started with this like clean slate, you know? It was an accident. It wasn't supposed to be, you know, everything that we talked about. Yeah. That came from from another place, you know? And it occupies its own domain, and we I, we have to keep it there, you know? So bringing my tunes into it is not the answer at all.
0: All right, let's go the other way. How sure. f- How far comfortable with ensemble improv? How far out there you, do you take it with this band, and is that what keeps it interesting on a night-to-night basis more than anything else? Well, I,
4: it is. It's, you know, I mean, I can't play, I mean... It is yes. When we when when this group is conversing musically the way like successfully, then we're really getting somewhere. You know, I am not a harmonically deep musician. I'm not a guitar player's guitar player at all. I really only know a few things, but um, it's the converse, it's the conversing. It's the it's the space and how we play together. That's what makes it interesting. You know, space I'm is not place, a terribly right? interesting guitar player on my own. And Adam, as good as he is, he's, we're kind of this, well, he's better musician than me, but he's similar, you know, we kind of need bands and we need each other to make it into something, you know, um, particularly me on guitar, actually, in in a way I'm the, not the weak link in the band, but, you know, this world that we're in of groups that we're talking about, this milieu is like filled with a lot of really incredible guitar players. I've been around them, you know. Um, you know, when you know that there's a Jimmy Herring or someone around the corner, it's hard to. <laughs> for me, it's sort of like, what am I doing here? You know, um, but the musical
1: conversation piece. Well, that's...
4: that's it. If you can do that, you know, you can say a lot with very little. And if you're, I mean, that's what the Dead was all about. I mean, they were brilliant musicians, but really, it was about their. It was about the. It was about the language. Mm-hmm. You know, so circles in a way. It's a limited um, vocabulary.
1: That's what I was thinking in my head. Yeah,
4: there. the alphabet has not been developed that far yet, but it is a language mm-hmm. of our own, actually. Um, and you can hear where it's coming from. There, you, you're like, oh, yes, I, I can hear the it funk influences. Me. I can hear the dead influences. I can hear the certain. You know, jazz things or whatever.
1: Yeah. But well, it's funny. So when I was in college, I played the trumpet, mm-hmm. and the, I used to. Now, I, now it makes sense why I like your band as much as I do. Is is that when I was playing, the te- the professor was a jazz cat, and he'd be like, you know, you gotta you gotta know your notes, and you gotta know your you know all the language, you gotta know it. And I'm like, uh, yeah, but man, it's just about feeling, it's just right. about feeling, and and there's a mix, but but I, I get that feeling part and being able to really speak the
4: yeah, that's what we that's what we do. That's that's what we have. You know, so we've made this, I mean, again, you can, we're not inventing anything. You can hear where each one of us come from, but we had something that's kind of unique in a way, really, you know, you know, we were just the jazz fest and I mean, there's instrumental bands out there that are devastating, you know, um,
0: particularly in New Orleans. Mm-hmm. What's that? Particularly in New Orleans.
4: Yeah, oh, right. Oh, I mean, fest. we saw the new master sounds and we oh, saw wow, the, wonderful. you know. Mono neon guy playing, you know, and like I mean, there's really just, and there's young musicians now. I think they're better than Have ever. Have you done
1: anything with Krung No,
4: mm-hmm. I've seen them though. I think that would be a cool. Oh, well, they're incredible. Yeah, I'm. Uh, they're they're. I mean, they're really like, uh, uh, the gold standard in a way. You know, yeah. even though they're not, I don't know, start out as a part of the scene, and they right. certainly don't play.
3: New
1: music every night. It's a, their show's their show. In yeah. A lot of ways. Well, and
4: you also. I mean, I you know when you see them, I don't get the feeling like oh they came from the jam world. Not at all. No. But they're just cool. And really they cool. Write really cool music, and their restraint is what makes it. Yeah. Beautiful, and there's just such power in their space and. You know, and their show is great. There's like wow. this really subtle humor. I mean, they're be- really nice.
1: On Jam Cruise last year, uh, Vince Herman decides her, uh, him and Drew they wear uh, they put on like they got wigs, and so they go ahead and
3: they, they, they Krangin, bust out and
1: they started doing a little thing. And yeah. Vince and Vince does the you know those yeah, little the, legs and stuff. It was one of the funniest things I've ever seen.
4: Yeah, but they're <laughs> yeah, a they're a great band, and they're, they're they're a cool example for you know us. But I mean, yeah, there's there's a lot of people there's just, uh, I think, I don't know. I think musicians are better than ever. Really. I think this digital revolution over the past, like however many years is just creating new ways of learning and the, But there's got
1: to be less pressure for you. You know what I mean? Like Less pressure to to have to... Well, I don't know. I mean, I feel like there's got to be a little less pressure because you're not trying to sound like a certain style. You're not trying to sound like a certain thing. You're not trying to you know not sound like something. Maybe the Jerry thing might get on you a little bit where you try not to overly do it or whatnot. I mean, you mentioned that earlier. True, but even the guy you buy fish from at the market has four four records out. You know, everybody
4: seems (laughs) to have music. True, yeah. Well, there's just... Or a podcast. Well, that's... I mean, I'm trying as hard as I can. But uh, I don't know. It's just, I think it's a really interesting time right now. I think we're coming into... I think music is in really great shape, you
0: know? A few more things, I'm going to let you go. What are your memories from playing with Lucinda? She's a she's a enigmatic, mystical figure to many.
1: Lucinda Williams?
0: Lucinda Williams, yes. Uh, what I remember
4: is, like, we rehearsed without her for probably four three or four days, you know. The band rehearsed up the tunes without her. And then she came in. I just remember, I don't remember the exact song. It was one of her great ballads, you know. And, uh, yeah, she just had her guitar on and looked a little, you know, confused. You know, she was kind of like walking around. It looked like she didn't really know what she was doing. And there was this kind of confused look on her face. And then she just turned quickly as the first line came and she just sang that first word. And, like, <laughs> my knees just buckled, you know, the power of her mm. voice and her character, uh, you know, who, just who she is as a writer and, and a singer, too. It just, like, knocked me to my knees. I was like, oh, that's why she is who she is. Who
0: are some other musicians you've worked with that are a great source of pride for you?
4: Uh. uh... I don't know. <laughs> um, I did a session with Mike Campbell once. It was just one nice. day. Like it was on a Tiff Merritt record, and he came in and we Tiff got...
0: Merritt. I yeah. love her.
4: Yeah, I played on an album of hers a long time ago. Fantastic. A called Tambourine. Um, so that was really great getting to play with him for. a He's minute. a big deadhead too. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, um, playing in the Beachwood Sparks is a um, really big deal to me. I think they're one of the best bands ever. Uh, very proud of my time with them, playing with Cass, Cass McCombs and Farmer Dave and Dan, you know, and the Skiffle Players. Another equally big deal. I mean, Cass McCombs is, is as good a songwriter as anybody.
0: And he's starting to get his due, which is good to see.
4: Yeah, he damn well deserved. Um, so those are a couple things. There's a lot, Uh you know, I just... Produced a record for this guy who's opening for us tonight. Um, this guy named Zephaniah O'Hara, who is just an up-and-coming sort of country songwriter, kind of in the vein of things we were talking about before. Like a Sturgle kind of guy? or What's that? Like a Sturgle? Um, sort of, yeah. I guess, yeah, you would put him loosely in that category. Uh, I just produced a record for him. And um, just... Oh, Jeff Hill from CRB played bass on it, and John Graboff from the cardinals played steel and a couple of young musicians that zephaniah brought with him. uh it just blew my mind it's one of the like best records i've ever been involved with and it was nice to produce something too are you God.
1: producing a lot now
4: uh, not a lot, but I'd like to do more of it.
1: And if you're a band out there interested in getting produced, yeah, give a call sure. at 555-444-2121. <laughs>
0: that yeah. new alt country is just happening right now. I just saw Tyler Childers. What a great show. And how locked in his fans were to hit every word. That Purgatory album hasn't even been out two years, and these people know every single word, not wow. the
4: chorus. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I just like I just played guitar. Sheeter Jennings is a friend of mine. Uh, you know, He produces a lot of records, and I just... Mm-hmm. Played guitar for him on an album that he's producing for another one of you know Yeah, that this movement of like young country songwriters is incredible right now. He's yeah, I wanna end with a it it.
0: sound check here. So some favorite spontaneous moments, on stage spontaneous moments. Cardinals, Hardwing Americans, Brotherhood, any that come to mind. Like for example, did Ryan ever do the Dylan thing where just start a song that you hadn't even rehearsed? Oh yeah, all the time. And then what do you do? You just just play. We
1: yeah. just talked. We just talked
0: about that in the beginning of the interview, Rob. Where are you? <laughs> huh? No, but come on, where you where? where it's a pre written song. Like Dylan did it to Petty with Tom Thumbs in Japan, and he did it to the Dead with Tambourine Man and Anaheim. Uh, yeah, Ryan did it a lot,
4: particularly in the beginning of that band. I don't remember the song, but he
0: did it all the time. Yeah. Oh yeah. And that was that fun, or was that would that ever? That was like the best part or the worst part of playing with him? You know, that was great fun, you know? I didn't care. <laughs> I was fine with it. <laughs> That's great. Um, what yeah. else would he do spontaneously like like being in state. a like, would, you ever, impro- would you ever suddenly impro- improvise? We improvise all kinds like of the stuff. Charts,
4: yeah, on- absolutely. Sure. Um, yes, we would do that all the time, actually. Ryan was fearless about that stuff. I mean, he would just... He would do anything, you know? He would end a show if he didn't feel like doing it anymore and not, you know... <laughs> he just liked did whatever he wanted um okay, hardworking Americans yeah. I don't know there's there there was one funny time I don't know if I should uh, Todd wouldn't don't
1: care don't worry by this time Todd no
4: one's care. listening have you read Todd's book uh yeah I <laughs> he have he does not care
1: yeah please no.
4: well yeah this was in LA we had this big LA show uh that was important apparently and Todd took way too much acid before the show <laughs> and he like didn't think he could go on, you know? He was, like, not doing well. (laughs) But we, like, I don't know, it was like, you have to go on stage. So we went and played, and he had this banana in his hand. And in the early part of the show, he, I don't know, he was just, he was tripping hard, you know? (laughs) So it was weird to play with him. He threw the banana into the audience, and then he just went through this whole show in this Bizarre state, you know? Um, And then, it's not going to be funny. It won't translate. But at the very end of the show, like two hours later, during this encore, he said, Has anyone seen My Banana? (laughs) (laughs) And... Like And then he slipped right into the next song. And the rest of us were like, hey, the rest of us were like kind of pissed, you know, for that <laughs> show because we were like, dude, this isn't cool, you know. And I was like really uptight. I don't care about people, you know, doing acid or whatever, but it affected the show and I was uptight about it. And then when he said the thing about the banana at the end, he had remembered it. Like that's the thing. He you know, for as out there as he was, he remembered that he threw his banana and asked for it back, and it just I just broke into tears on stage, and it was kind of one of the best shows I've ever played. And that's like, that's why I love Todd so
0: much. I have a theory about him. I think he subconsciously sabotages his own career because he has a fear of being that which... He has a fear of being too big. He doesn't want to be too big. Yeah, you know... That he would, it would take him away from his core. Yeah, yeah. Todd,
4: I mean, a lot of these... A lot of these people do that, you know, but I love Todd. He's an incredible songwriter. He really, his new record is so good. And you know, one with Brotherhood? Oh God, you'd think I'd remember something with all the hundreds and
0: hundreds of shows we've played, but I
4: don't know. What were know. those first
0: shows like where the songs weren't really formed yet, but you're out doing shows and they're, they're, these songs are coming to life. I, I mean, everyone always talks about songs coming to life live, but this no, is like No, we literally extreme. did it,
4: yeah. I don't know it was amazing it was just such a great time the beginning of that band was was incredible it really was it was beautiful time and the the you know the thing that we did Chris's idea which is a great one was to do residencies around California mm-hmm. you know so we would like every other week we would go to play the same place in LA and San Francisco and San Diego, Santa Barbara. And that's where people latched onto us because they saw mm-hmm. us growing. And it, that was a great idea because we just built this like local following before we took it around the country. And those first couple months were, um, they were really special time, you know, I made a lot of friends that will be friends forever, you know, right there in that pocket, uh, the CRB was a very familial thing. You know, it felt, I think for the people it was special to, they felt like they were in on something, you know? They were in with us. Yeah, that's the together. thing about during those residencies. Yeah.
1: You really can create that. And that's one of the unique ways to do that. Yeah, and we were Songs evolving, people hearing it later down the road. And-
4: that's right, yeah. And we didn't play like other people. We weren't really on... We were just on our own little, you know, in our own little caravan of weirdness and... Um yeah, people got to like I don't know, just kind of be there with us as we were doing it and we would just buy records. We had a record player on our bus. I mean, for a while it's like the inside of our bus looked like a record store. <laughs> there were just piles. Of I records. think I heard that Everywhere. somewhere before. And we know. would listen to records all night long after playing all night long and talk about albums and how we were gonna use this idea for this and you know, it was this constantly inspired. Really, really fun thing, and it was very real, you know. Um, and that's a, okay. uh, you know, when I think about it now, it's like you just don't get that a lot, you yeah. know. You don't. That wasn't the
0: most a, fascinating thing about that band. It
4: was beautiful. It wasn't a business, you know. We were just, we were really just like, we were playing and having a blast and being creative and doing it with our people that were right in front of us, watching it grow and. We didn't really care how big it got or where it was going, actually. we were just There wasn't this huge like plan of attack. It was just like, in the moment, we were doing it, doing it, doing it, and we wanted to make records all the time and play as much as we could. So I'm glad that I had that in my life. It was an amazing thing. Pure intentions are a beautiful thing. Let's end with the Rolling Stones. When did you first see them? I only saw them... Uh, once, as obsessed with that, as obsessed with them <laughs> as I am, and I am obsessed with the Stones, and I have a few friends that are, and we just like text each other and YouTube, sh- Instagram shit all day. Okay. Hey,
1: apparently, he calls Carl Denson now all the time.
4: Hey, Carl! I do. Carl, what's Keith really like? Um, listen, on, our, uh, listen, to our episode. He <laughs> talks about it. I only saw the Stones once, uh, believe it or not. Uh, I saw them in 1989, which I think was probably the worst time to see them. Steel Wheels, come on! I mean, they did. She's a Rainbow, Two Thousand Light Years from Home, right? They did. Those were the highlights. Actually, I saw the first show of the Steel Wheels tour. Uh, That's it. It was good.
0: So you never met any of them or anything?
4: I did. Yeah, you did. Yeah, how'd that happen? I spent a whole day with Keith Richards once, actually. Yeah, I did. It's uh, it was me and him and one other guy, kind of like just like this here. We just sat around a table. It's kind of a long story, and I'm not going to tell all of it, but it wasn't at a show. it wasn't on tour. It was a completely like off the radar thing. I was with someone that knew him and he won a contest <laughs> no that's the thing it was no it wasn't anything like that there was it was like a hang you know oh that's cool.
0: what was your biggest takeaway from it like what did Keith Dean impart? To oh in man, that? he
4: was so cool. he was so cool. This was in nineteen ninety six and um he was yeah, when I got there. He was playing Stones demos, like, like um, songwriting demos the whole day. There were just, you know, you'd hear that like he and Mick on piano and they were mumbling stuff. Like they write, they just like mumble s- syllables into words and I was hearing all of it and he was talking about it and he was super nice and cool and he just smoked cigarettes and had a big book about Russian history or something on the <laughs> table and he was absolutely charming and great and it was the kind of best moment of my life ever
0: <laughs> if the Rolling Stones were going to re- uh, cover one Neil Casal song, <laughs> no, no, song I don't what would that song be I don't know
4: I can't remember any of my songs I have Aww. no idea uh, <laughs> great songs oh, well they would they would color. they would cover Willow Jane actually okay. which is like a stone song that I wrote